Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Canadians are now moving their evacuation operations to uh, port cities as uh, the conflict continues in Sudan. We're watching it. We have Sudanese Canadians um, worried and concerned about the safety of so many relatives uh, tethered to their phones, trying to contact them, unsure of how long it's going to go on. And as we watch the evacuation, it has been a bit of a stumble of Canada. They had to try to get it together, watching other countries now, I, you know, suspending some of the flights and being what critics say a little bit late to the table. This happened out of the blue. So it's not as if they know this takes time. But for some military analysts, they're connecting it a little bit with Afghanistan, where the feeling is still there. It is haunting those who believe that we deserted those who helped us in Afghanistan. It also draws attention to one of the big stories, political stories and military stories as we talk about our ability to defend ourselves, leaks. It's, it seems to be certainly, unfortunately, trending our national security and military. Christian Luprecht joining us live on the Sunday afternoon, political science professor at Queen's University. Christian, good afternoon. Good afternoon, Arlene. What do you think we're watching as Canadians as we see Sudan? Is there a connection with Afghanistan? Is it a concern how the evacuations took place? Sure. So both of these are what's known as non-combatant evacuations. Uh, and uh, the Afghanistan situation was in some ways a bit easier because it was no, what's known as a semi-permissible environment. So there was a deal with the Taliban and the Taliban stuck to it in terms of providing security. Um, uh, the uh, challenging situation in Sudan is that is what's known as a non-permissible environment. So that is to say uh, there's fighting. Any people you put on the ground are at risk. Anybody who's trying to move through uh, through the countries at serious risk, and as we saw, also planes and any other assets in the uh, in in the country are effectively at risk. So that makes it much more challenging uh, to orchestrate. Now, this is something that Canadian armed forces need to be able to do. It is part of strong, secure, engaged our defense policy. Um, but of course, it is over and above all the other missions that the Canadian Armed Forces have on the go. And so anytime you have this type of a mission, it's a zero sum game because you're pulling assets off other uh, of other missions. And you can see the challenge that Canada had both in actually getting assets to the region. And then we showed up with about 200 soldiers. The Germans showed up with a thousand soldiers and have another 1600 on standby through the end of May uh, to be able to continue the, uh, the evacuation. So again, we're leading on our allies to provide the security, to provide the intelligence. We don't have a foreign human collection service. Uh, so uh, that inherently hampers our ability to move and to move quickly in these sorts of circumstances. All right. As we look at Canada and the reaction to this, first of all, uh, to the conflict we're seeing in uh, Sudan, civil war, now war. I mean, uh, the flames are going up. The pictures are growing in intensity. What do you make of what is actually happening there, Christian? Yeah, the, so the challenge, of course, is what is transpiring in terms of the war itself and the broader region, right? So if you look at the countries um, in the neighborhood, Central African Republic, Chad, Ethiopia, um, to some extent, so some of these extremist challenges within uh, within Egypt, Libya, uh, these are all countries that already uh, have, have challenges with stability. So um, Sudan risks sort of uh, creating a much broader regional conflagration. At the same time, there's an opportunity here for the government of Canada. So there's a strategic interest for the government of Canada to step in, because if we have broader instability in the region, we saw in 2015 what massive refugee flows do in terms of uh, political stability yes. and so forth among our European allies. So we have a clear strategic interest in contributing to the stabilization. And of course, we have um, civilian capabilities on the ground. Several of the key humanitarian aid organizations 
Sudan's World Vision, Oxfam, Plan, uh, are all active in Sudan and in the neighboring countries. And I've been disappointed so far that we have not seen a significant announcement from the minister in terms of a humanitarian contribution that we can make and uh, that we're not drawing, for instance, on, uh, on the rapid fund that exists for Canada to respond to natural disasters, but we don't have such a fund to respond to conflict. Um, and it's taking too long for Canada to come to the table and support the civilian assets that can at least mitigate some of the humanitarian catastrophe that is unfolding. It's just blowing back the curtain on other things that we've talked about. National security, our ability to step up, a worry that our allies in NATO think that we're behind the leg, as uh, writers say. And Christian, is this just showing up as an example here? Uh, yes, I mean, to, to a large extent, um, we came after other allies. So France, of course, ran its own evacuation. Um, uh, Germany, there was some conflict with the UK, but we do have we do seem to have some decent coordination with other allies in terms of removing our own nationals and other nationals. Uh, but I think it shows how relatively lethargic the whole system in Ottawa is. It takes a long time to get assets together. It takes a long time to make political decisions. And the problem is the longer you wait to make decisions, the narrower your room for maneuver comes. So the greatest impact you can have if you're able to respond quickly, uh, for instance, the way the Americans were able to move assets in relatively expeditiously um, in order to save the diplomats. But of course, the optics of simply going in and saving your diplomats or only your nationals and not showing up and doing other things that are just as imp strategically important, on the one hand, shows that we don't have a good strategic grasp among key political decision makers in Ottawa of why it's in Canada's interest to act. And we don't have a good grasp of how we need to act in a concerted fashion, not just um, with our allies, but also among our military and civilian agencies in order to respond to these types of catastrophes and to mitigate their impact both uh, nationally and regionally. Are our allies noticing this? Is this noticeable in areas that the average Canadian can't see? We're talking about it, but are others paying attention to this, other countries? Well, sure. I mean, look, Canada was excluded from the most important technology sharing deal in the last 50 years, the AUKUS arrangement between the United States, uh, the United Kingdom and Canada. Um, there was recently a consensus minus one decision at NATO. Uh, Canada has not always been uh, had the opportunity to speak to matters uh, where uh, it it has wanted to speak um, at NATO. Uh, you can see the French ambassador putting the Canadian government on notice about are we going to step up or not. Uh, so uh, there is Certainly, I think some misgiving about our allies, about both what we are doing um, and how we are positioning ourselves, not just for the present, but also for a world that is becoming increasingly contested. And if you add to that demographic change, climate change, um, uh, increasingly unstable. And of course, countries such as Sudan are disproportionately hit both on the demographic, um, uh, on, on, on population growth, as well as the compound effects of, okay. uh, of climate change. So it's going to be a lot more heavy lifting to do. And if we're having trouble just doing what we need to do today, we're going to have real trouble tomorrow. Christian, I'm going to switch and just kind of keep Sudan in our minds because it's happening actively. Also happening actively is a topic you and I have been discussing and the world has been watching, which is the war in Ukraine and Russia. We're starting to see uh, and what was predicted to be more intensity there. And we have Ukraine vowing and pushing forward to move in and even uh, with its eyes still on Crimea. Christian, as we watch Sudan and we see what's happening in Ukraine right now, another worry has been support again, support of allies. How is that chess game looking today? Yeah, so one of the things where Canada has um, done well when it comes to Ukraine is that uh, if you look at the Kiel Institute that tracks uh, deliveries, that the weapons that Canada has promised, uh, that Canada is actually very good at following through on what it promises and following through on time. Now, uh, I think there's considerable frustration that Canada uh, needs to be doing more. Uh, part of the challenge is that we don't have, a, a contrary to what people say, uh, this very strong consensus on Ukraine. 
And so Canada doing more is also a way to keep the uh, coalition that we have together and to uh, be leading in terms of making sure we sustain that effort. Um, and of course, uh, much remains to be seen here about how the spring uh, the spring works out. There's a lot of uncertainty here on both sides. Both sides are very fatigued in this conflict. Um, and uh, we need to uh, make sure that uh, uh, we defend freedom and uh, democracy here. And that's what's ultimately at stake. Are you still worried? Many people are worried as we watch in America and then even here in Canada, far left, far right, wherever it's coming from, the pro-Russian comments. Sure. So uh, absolutely. We need to be very uh, attuned to the active uh, disinformation campaign that Russia is running in order to undermine and divide the Western effort. Um, and as you point out, specifically on the far left and the far right of the political spectrum, where Russia is very active in trying to mobilize uh, both opinion and action against further support for Ukraine. Uh, these type of active measures date back to Soviet times. It is part of Russian military doctrine. Um, and we need to remember that this is is all an integrated effort. So the war from Ukraine can't neatly be separated from Russia's ongoing gray zone and uh, asymmetric and hybrid activities to undermine our democracy, our prosperity, um, and our societal harmony and uh, undermining the effort uh, the, and unity when it comes to supporting Ukraine uh, is an important part uh, of what Russia is attempting to do. Where does it come from? You know, earlier in the week, I spoke to Chris Alexander, of course, a former diplomat and former cabinet minister and the Harper government. And he was kind of no, tying it in. I mean, we, we, we were, the world was watching Fox News and the firing of Tucker Carlson and wondering if disinformation was that they were getting more reality based. I think that is what the term is. How does all this stuff tie in together where this comes from? It's, you know, not just coming from those who are you know, war watchers, it gets put into the to the conversation. What are you watching? Where this these information and these talking points are coming from? Yes, of course, we've had this, if you want, liberalization, individualization of the media environment, uh, both through the proliferation of uh, various cable channels and, of course, through social media and algorithms that allow us not only to target particular population groups, but also to understand the behavior of those population groups um, in order to target them. And, of course, that's one of the concerns with regards to TikTok, uh, the ability of an authoritarian hostile government to gather behavioral patterns on Western populations uh, and then and then effectively weaponize that data um, against our democracy and against uh, against our populations so um, and uh, the only way we can really combat this effectively is by building resilient societies where people become more astute about the sort of information that they are viewing and being able to question themselves um, on that information the challenge I think that we have generally in North America but uh, also in particular in Canada that our levels of political education um, are relatively low compared to Europe. And uh, so that obviously makes it easier to drive wedges uh, and to plow, apply people uh, with information that uh, is, uh, uh, is, is far from accurate, uh, but that gets uptake based on people's uh, behavioral and attitudinal uh, patterns towards the world. How do we do it, though? I mean, we're watching it. We've got all sorts of of awareness about dismantling this misinformation. And then those who put out the misinformation accuse the others of having misinformation. It's, it's quite sophisticated, though. We've seen that used in our history before. Yeah, I think one of the challenges for me is that uh, we've become very entrenched in the way we convey information. It's no longer about engaging in debates and reflection. It's it's about uh, doctrinal sort of acceptance that these are my views and these views are correct and I'm not going to change them and you're just going to need to accept my views. And I think in a democracy, uh, we ultimately thrive on debate and we thrive on argument and we thrive on a free market of ideas where ultimately the better 
ideas are supposed to win. But the same way that authoritarian hostile actors uh, are trying to manipulate our elections, the same way they're trying to manipulate our information on uh, the free market in the information environment so that certain ideas that would otherwise be at the margins uh, become uh, become much more amplified. And so I think the, the, the old adage that democracy is not to be taken for granted, democracy needs to be defended, uh, means that we don't just need to physically defend it in Ukraine, we also need to make sure we defend uh, our institutions and our information space uh, against people who leverage our freedoms for nefarious purposes. C-11, woo. It was such a tumble of unpacking this story, lots of predictions about a gloom and doom, and lots of very good discussions about what do we do with modern media. It is a kind of known as the streaming services law. It's now passed, and it is going to be showing up at a theater near you or in your computer. It is... A moment, you know, I was talking earlier about CanCon. I have a lot of experience with it. And then all the words that were being used in this really set me off. And I have a, a great reflection on what that meant throughout my career and the kind of regulations that there were on radio stations. But this law is going to be perhaps a turning point. We're going to find out more what we need to know and those who are critics of it, what they're what they're nervous about. And joining us as we begin, Matt Hatfield, Campaigns Director with Open Media. Matt, good afternoon. Hi there. Thanks for having me. All right, Matt, how much of a of a moment is this for you that it's passed here? Are you ready for it? I guess we're ready. I mean, it's it's a, a big moment, but it's also the start of everything that comes next. So uh, the bill that's been passed uh, has a lot of the same fundamental issues that it did about a year ago. And uh, the two big issues in our view are that it gives the CRTC the power to regulate online user video and audio content uh, as if it were broadcasting. Um, and it also gives them a very broad right to interfere with what shows up in your feeds and search results on many online platforms. So to try to get more official CanCon appearing there, and potentially uh, you could be seeing less of the things you actually want to see. All right. Uh, you know, they use the defense that it's there to promote Canadian content. As I said, I mean, I, I do not know how many times I have heard that in my career and it was tough. And then companies and broadcast companies found ways around it and found ways to make it work. What is different about this? Because this is the modern interpretation. And I think a lot of people don't realize how is it going to affect when they turn on their computer? Uh, well, that's a great question. I mean, one of the weird things of the bill, the, the bill has passed and it said this is how it's going to work, but we actually haven't revisited CanCon and uh, redefined what that means yet. Uh, and the definitions of, of what is Canadian content were last updated in, in the 80s. Uh, they haven't really been touched since. And so we don't know who is going to qualify as officially Canadian and what kind of content will be chosen. Um, people shouldn't think that they're going to turn on their computer tomorrow and, and the bill has instantly changed everything. There's actually going to be a couple of years uh, at the CRTC of figuring out what all this means. It is. And that's going to be another battle, isn't it? The interpretation of it. Yes, exactly. I mean, we want to make sure that it's as, as fair as possible and as, as inclusive as possible. There shouldn't be any Canadian creators who suddenly find that they somehow are designated not CanCon. I mean, that's that's crazy happens, though, and it happened many, many years ago. Let me ask you, um, Matt, what's your worst fear about this then? I mean, I guess the worst fear is that uh, some of the harshest critics of the government are right, and this is uh, sort of a creeping attempt to uh, create a legal basis on which the government can regulate user content much more directly and uh, interfere with, with our speech and online expression. Uh, the government throughout has said that is absolutely not their intention. And on day one of the bill passing, uh, the, the new CRTC had uh, Vicky Petridis um, issued a statement saying that she has no intention of, uh, of regulating user content. But this next stage is really the opportunity for the government to put their money where their mouth is, as it were. And um, we think it would have been much better if they'd clearly protected user content in the bill. Uh, but what they can do now is issue a policy direction to the CRTC making crystal clear that user content and user choice should both be respected. 
All right. User content and user choice. You know, um, people are watching YouTube. There's a whole new world out there and it's not even so new. It's kind of old at this point, isn't it, Matt? Again, I mean, there's a sense here and part of the argument is that if what you choose to watch does not fall into these certain categories, you're losing it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's no way of constructing a feed where if you're making sure some content appears, other content doesn't uh, stop appearing. So I think a lot of Canadians, especially younger Canadians, they don't log on thinking, well, I need to make sure I need to get my 30% of Canadian content today. No. I think I love a lot of creators. Some of, their, uh, some of them are Canadian, some of them aren't, and I'm, I'm going to take from them all. And so we're really going to be encouraging the CRTC very strongly to respect that world, to respect our choices, and not do anything too heavy-handed that I think people would actually really hate. It is. You know, okay, I just want to, if you can help us too here, because I think uh, I was talking to some people about it and they just didn't get it. Again, you go to your computer, what what could be regulated here? A YouTube video? A movie? What? Yeah, so so anything on any of the major online streaming services could be regulated. Um, there's been sort of some, some lack of clarity around just how far it could go. And we'd really been trying to get at least the, the smallest foreign services excluded because it's Kind of crazy to imagine that, you know, BritBox or, or some Korean uh, drama site could suddenly find they have a CanCon obligation. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't get that protection in the law. Uh, but again, we're going to be coming back to the CRTC and saying, well, you have to clean this up now. Um, surely you can, can make clear that this needs to be a, a more modest obligation that applies to the larger streaming services and only in a, a very user choice respecting way. All right. You know, as as we look at it, it really is amazing how the world has changed. I can't imagine that there is not going to be a revolt here if any of those things start happening. I mean, people, I don't, I just don't think you can put the genie back in the bottle, Matt, do you? No, I don't. And, you know, if anything does happen that you really hate, turn a VPN on and you'll be fine. Uh, <laughs> uh, of course, lots of people don't <laughs> want to run a VPN for all kinds of reasons, but uh, this is such a sort of reactionary approach to the internet. It's an approach that's uh, very fearful, I think, of the external world in some ways and doesn't have confidence that a lot of great Canadian creators can and are succeeding on the internet as we know it. You know, there's a lot of people who actually testified to the House and the Senate saying, I'm doing great on YouTube. My content is going gangbusters. Please don't screw this up for me. And we really need them not to make this actually worse for some creators, which is a concern some of them have. It is. And, uh, you know, it really is, as you say it, you talk about creators. There are people whose livings depend on this. People make money in this area now. And we don't we still don't know. And it's been one of the fears if they're going to be shut down. And should they be? Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh we would always be favorable to things that made sort of the black box of how some of these platforms work more more clear, uh, both to creators and to users. And if the government had been proposing that, I think that would be great. Um, but there's there's things that could go wrong here that are kind of counterintuitive. So the government can force us to see certain types of content in our feed. They can't force us to watch yeah. it. So if a bunch yeah. of creator content is is thrown at people who aren't actually that interested in seeing it, that actually really penalizes those creators overall in the system where even though they're, the option of watching them is being shown to more people, they might lose views on the whole uh, because they're not actually being targeted correctly by the system. Yeah, it's true. Absolutely. You know, they can, you can lead the horse to water. You cannot make it drink. We're about to, maybe we're about to see more of that, Matt. Yeah, exactly. It was seen as the new frontier. And now the Canadian government is doing what the Canadian government certainly did to broadcasting for many, many years. Now it is doing to the Internet. Is it going to ruin it for you? Maybe you're a creator and you're excited about it. Maybe you're someone who thinks that you may be shut down. Matt, there are people who are kind of excited about that, aren't there? They want this. Absolutely. Yes. There's a lot of people, I think, particularly from sort of the more traditional old school side of media uh, and also quite a few people in Quebec. Um, you know, there's a lot of worry about losing language in Quebec and people are seeing this bill as, as one path to reinforcing the language locally. 
All right, we've got Netflix, Disney, Spotify. If they put money into Canadian content, is it going to increase the stories? As I said, you know, this was such so controversial, such a thorn in the side of broadcasters. They had to get around it, and they still do to some degree today. It has loosened up, though. I mean, there's a, a new a new field of users and producers here who have to get used to this, Matt, and they're used to freedom. Is that a, a key word here? Yeah, certainly freedom's been one of the key themes on this bill. I mean, uh, unfortunately, uh, the government hasn't given a lot of reassurance to people uh, that there was no risk of their freedoms being affected by it. Um, They can do some cleanup now with the policy direction, and the CRTC can do some cleanup as well. But it's not quite the same thing as having a legal protection uh, of our content in the bill. And it means a future government and a future CRTC could change their mind and sort of step in and say, hey, actually, we do want you to regulate user speech as broadcasting. And and look, it turns out the law allows you to. And that's our concern. It is. And, you know, everybody's kind of wringing their hands over this because it's tied into broader a broader question here. And I call it the Wild Wild West, whatever we do. There is a sense that there has been just taking it even out of here and what we can do and what we can't, that laying it all out certainly has its problems. We have misinformation, disinformation. What do we allow? Do we allow people to tell tell lies look at uh, how we look at elon musk and twitter and uh, he keeps yelling freedom and then he keeps taking it away on on twitter certainly in my opinion here matt it's uh, there's a lot of irony going on out there there is certainly and, and there are huge problems of misinformation online um that many many of us would like to see uh better handled uh, but something that's that's very broadly agreed, and even uh, the government had a poll recently themselves that showed this, is that Canadians do not trust the government to be the one deciding uh, what is and isn't truthful information. If there is to be some, some cleanup on misinformation, it needs to be more uh, independent standards and, and bodies that are, are doing work on that, not the government uh, saying, hey, it turns out that you know correct information is, is that which represents our policies as we think they should be represented. It is. And there's a lot of people not used to it. We've got all sorts of uh, weighing in here that it's going to affect the actual political angles of things. What do you say? Yeah, I mean, I think um, unless they impose broadcasting regulations very aggressively, uh, which for now, at least I'd be surprised. I don't think people's content is at risk of being taken down, uh, according to broadcasting regulation. The area I'd really encourage people to watch, um, if they are worried about some voices being stifled, is that CanCon redefinition. So the question of what gets marked as, as official Canadian content and what doesn't could matter a lot if this ends up being quite a, a strong uh, change that the CRTC exerts. So uh, if you're worried that, that some of your, your favorite voices might not be designated as CanCon, I'd definitely follow that process and make sure that what comes of it is fair. Because the CRTC is, is a very process-driven uh, body. Um, they will attempt to abide by what comes from that process. And we just need to make sure what comes from it is is fair and reasonable. Matt, do we have any idea how they're going in this? Again, I have a, a little bit of uh, experience with the, the definition of it. and matters exactly what you say because of the interpretation of it. You know, is it is it Canadian? Do Canadian people have to have produced it? Do Canadian people have to be on it? Do you have to have a, a Canadian voice, a Canadian face? Or is it Canadian money? Does it have to be made in the bricks and mortar of a Canadian place? All that stuff, and there can that can you can get around those things and yeah. still do some pretty good stuff as long as you can. You're fluid and agile, and there's movement there. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the really odd thing about official Canadian content is it kind of has this dual mandate where it's both supposed to represent Canadian storytelling on some level and uh, telling all kinds of stories about what it's like to be Canadian and and living in Canada and reflect ourselves to ourselves. And that's kind of how the government sells it when they're talking to ordinary folk like like many of us. Uh, But when they're talking to creators, that is not how they sell it. It's about Canadian production. It is about making sure that money and key roles are flowing to many of these traditional Canadian companies. And it's, it's kind of hard to pay equal respect to both sides at once. I mean, if you're doing Canadian storytelling, Mm -hmm. you would think, well, Every Canadian should have a, an opportunity to be involved in that and, and tell what they think their story is. 
But when you're focused on production, that can get very technical and thorny, and that's where you see weird things like, you know, The Handmaid's Tale not being marked as Canadian, yeah, or exactly. huge Netflix productions set in yeah. Toronto that are very clearly a Canadian story, that they're not technically CanCon. President Joe Biden saying he's going to take a, a go at it again. We have former President Donald Trump looking like he, right now at this moment in time, is going to get the nomination for the Republicans. And we have from Roll Call, Walter Shapiro, a man who has covered, I have lost count of how many presidential elections and administrations he has covered, but he will tell us in just a moment. Walter, good afternoon. Thank you for joining me here. Hello, Arlene. The the answer is uh, I've covered every presidential race beginning in 1980. All right. So how many is that? This will be the 12th. Oh, my God. Yeah. Wow. Okay, Walter. I want to be I'm going to get it right. <laughs> okay. Well, at least we're a little forewarned. Walter, look where we are right now. We've got two old people, and we're not being ageist or, or anything, but I know this has been on your mind as well. What are you thinking as you look at what could be the Trump and well, Biden rego? The first election um, between two, um, two candidates um, who were... Um, both born uh, when Joe Stalin was a major figure in world affairs. <laughs> yeah, that election. That yeah, election. Well, guys, yeah. Okay. A, cu- a couple of cautionary notes. Okay. On the Republican side, it is really, really early. We have gone, and the American press, and it amuses, it amuses me when it doesn't exasperate me, is so into certainty. They are, are so believing. And two months ago, Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, was going to be the serious opponent to Trump, the guy who could probably take Trump down. Now DeSantis is yesterday's news. He, his candidacy is doomed. Trump has been anointed the, the nominee for the third time. And no one's voted. No one <laughs> will not even kick a ballot until... January in Iowa on the Republican side. All we are doing is reacting to very, very preliminary national polls. And even the national polls ignore the fact that voters in the primaries here vote sequentially. So the the results in Iowa affect New Hampshire. The results in New Hampshire affect South Carolina. But all of this is ignored by the media, who are just so into premature certainty. Premature certainty. It uh, can go in there with other premature things. Uh, Walter, you're absolutely right. I think they love predictability and they want to have something to write about. And so they say, I see the pattern. I see it's there. I see it before me. Walter, let's get back to this strange moment. There's always a fresh face jumping and nipping at the heels. You mentioned uh, Ron DeSantis and you're absolutely right. You start looking about a year before in any country for the air apparent somebody who's hungry for the job and he looked like he was but it doesn't always work that way i mean as you were talking i was thinking of elizabeth warren wasn't she an heir apparent at one time oh she was an heir apparent um someone named kamala harris was an heir apparent (laughs) yeah then she um bombed out as a candidate had to drop out before the 2020 iowa caucuses and then was only rescued from the scrap heap by joe biden picking her as is running mate. Scrap heap. That's not very nice, Walter. But <laughs> uh, well, that's when a, when, <laughs> when a candidate performs as bad, <laughs> runs out of money, starts yeah. off with major hype, yeah, performs uh, performs very dismally, and literally has to shut down her campaign because she's bringing in no money. Uh, that it may not be the scrap heap. But sure, it's not a a pedestal um, with a statue on it in the park. No, you're absolutely right. I brought up Elizabeth Warren, too. There's lessons to be learned here, too. As you say, there's so many moves. Elizabeth Warren ended up finishing third in the primary in her home state. Wow. What are the factors, Walter? 
What have you learned? What factors with all your experience are you watching for? Is it chance? Is it other people? Is it being forced into a corner and pushed? You know, we watch these primaries, certainly from Canadian eyes, I watch and you just see people trying to push people left and right and grab their segment. What are you looking for? What I'm looking for is a candidate who resonates with the voters. Um, it is possible. Um, if you came to me with decent odds, uh, right now, I would bet the field against both Trump and DeSantis on the Republican side. You know, I still think really? that both Nikki Haley, the former governor of South Carolina, and Tim Scott, the former current senator from South Carolina, uh, the first black Republican in the Senate since the late 1970s, they will have, both will probably have a moment. It may not lead anywhere. But for one or two weeks, people are be taking them very seriously as candidates. And what they you do, do now, at that moment, it really yeah. will dictate um, their outcome. It will. But uh, Nikki Haley, uh, you know, we're about to take a break, and I know you're going to stick with us here, Walter. But Nikki Haley, I'll, I'll use your word, I kind of thought she was on the scrap heap as well. Why do you think she's still got a, a little bit of jam here? Just because uh, South Carolina is an early primary. She has a compelling story as an Indian American uh, who, um, whose parents came to a small town in South Carolina in the 1970s to open up a clothing factory. And um, she can, both of them, both she and Tim Scott, can sound like they're a Republican Party of the future rather than one totally mired in the Trumpian past. All right. I'm not I'm saying either of them are going to break through. I'm just saying that's a possibility. Walter, you said something, several things that intrigued me here. You were making kind of predictions on what could happen and maybe happen and taking it away from what people think is a settled science. But what about the former President Trump? He's indicted. We know he's got a lot of legal troubles. Another indictment could be happening in a few weeks, in a few months here. And he, he uh -oh. crashed in the midterms, Walter. What... Um, is the lost challenging three elections in a row for the Republicans? You got. I was uh, too kind. The 2018 midterms, <laughs> the 2020 uh, presidential elections, the 20, and uh, he is also, in addition to likely being indicted in Atlanta, Georgia, for his efforts to tamper with the uh, Georgia vote counting after the 2020 election, there is a civil suit going on um, where. Um, the writer, E. Jean Carroll, has accused yeah. him of rape, right. not a minor thing to say about a public figure. And while the statute of limitations on the rape charge is gone, she has, he is now in a, defamation, he, he's in a defamation case against her in New York court uh, where um, he had belittled her claims and insulted her, and she is um, suing for money. And the initial reports of the case indicate that seems to be going her way. It is. The, the trial is um, all eyes on that trial. Walter, those are things, but then I think, you know, him, how true it was. I can hear a shot on Fifth Avenue and nobody cares. <laughs> but we did see, as you say, he didn't win. He won the election. He didn't win all the other all the other elections. Walter, are the Democrats chomping at the bit for Trump to be the nominee here? I hope not, because Donald Trump, more than any other possible Republican, is a continuing threat to democracy and a continuing person who accepts no guardrails in American political life whatsoever. So I hope and my my slight skepticism about getting getting the nomination, him getting the nomination may be a function of um, uh, my hope getting my way of my. Uh, perception of reality. That said, too many people who think Trump is um, unbeatable in all circumstances are still getting over their PTSD from election night 2016, <laughs> where Trump won the election, but nobody thought he'd win. You got him. 
We know. I think people realize stuff happens. Uh, Walter, what about those voters, the shooting on Fifth Avenue? They've been with him. He's built a, a loyal base. He's fed that base. That base has stayed with him. He says, watch Fox. Don't watch Fox. Do this. Um, we also know that he's got legal troubles for uh, a a challenge that he said, come to Washington and let's go wild oh, on yeah. January 6th. So investigating yeah. his role you left that in egging no. on the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol. But it's the base, but, Walter, here, too. When you talk from your experience, have you readjusted things for this base that doesn't seem to care if he shot somebody? Oh, the, here we go. The base doesn't seem to care. But how big that base is, I don't know. Yeah. What is very hard for me to imagine, though, is a single voter who did not vote for Donald Trump in 2020, waking up on Election Day 2024 and saying, you know, that Trump guy, he was pretty good. <laughs> you're, you're right. um, you know, I have heard that easy. over and over, Walter. It's about politics is about addition, isn't it? Not subtraction. Yeah. And there's and no lure to addiction. Exactly. And there's no I see no evidence that Trump is adding anything. And, and to be quite brutal about it, since demographics are destiny, uh, a couple of million Trump voters uh, who, who's skewed elderly probably will be in no position physically to vote in 2024. And they'll be replaced by a couple of million 18 year olds, um, a subset that votes Democratic about two to one. So they're going to want Joe Biden, though. Here we have. I mean, Joe Biden uh, is no spring chicken. However, he's going to go for it. This is the problem uh, Uh that every vote. There are going to be very few votes of people waking up in the morning and saying, wow, no one has ever inspired me more than Joe Biden. Yeah. And to some extent, I really wish he were not running. Uh, because he will be 82 on Inauguration Day 2025. The dirty little secret of American politics, no matter who you are, second terms are invariably sad. Think of Bill Clinton's impeachment. Mm -hmm. Think of George W. Bush and Hurricane Katrina. Think of Ronald Reagan um, and this bizarro arms for hostages deal that was running out Mm -hmm. of the basement of the White House. You can just go back and back. Think of Richard Nixon, who had certain problems in his second term that led to his resignation over Watergate. Second terms in the best of circumstances are sad. And for Joe Biden, a second term when he's in his mid-80s does not bode well. It doesn't bode well, but there are those who say they're glad he's there because he might not be there for a long time, but he can beat Trump. Is that part of the factor there, that the bombastic attacks from Trump on fresh face might not work? What do you say? I think um, that basically Joe Biden has convinced himself he is indispensable, which is why he's running for a second term. I don't think Joe Biden was indispensable. I just think this is what convinced um, that convinced um, um, Biden to run. And there is a I would think a better than 50 percent chance that um, the Republicans will nominate someone other than Trump and there will be a dramatic age contrast. So who's, who's who are you thinking about, Walter? You're looking at it. I mean, this is a horse race and. Yeah, yeah, I'm a horse person. Uh, I watch and I see, and you, all okay, of a sudden I, I you see somebody. You do. You're watching on the rail here. Who are you watching? Well, I'm, I'm still watching DeSantis. Um, fundamentally, um, I thought you said he was done. Exceedingly early, um, and most people who vote in the Republican primaries are not paying attention. Uh, you know, the 25 million people voted in the Republican primaries in 2020, in 2016, mm-hmm. <laughs> the last time the Republicans had a presidential um, a primary fight, probably two and a half million of them are paying attention now. The other ones have other things to do with their lives, nine, 10, 11 months before they have to vote. It is. You know, as you're watching this, though, again, I'm going to go back to the voters. 
there's a feeling, and look what we've just watched and with Tucker Carlson and Fox, there's a feeling that there's a segment of the American population that wants what they want and they don't they don't care if it's it's not right or it's not true. As you say, that is not a big enough base to carry this election. So I ask you in, in broader terms to keeping that in mind, a lot of a lot of concern about democracy here. How are you feeling about democracy as we talk about all this stuff? Oh, I worry about it uh, constantly. I've worried about it since uh, Election Day 2016. The only thing is that I find that American politics has been surprisingly resilient. <clears throat> election deniers nominated for, pre- uh, for governor or Senate in 2022 did exceptionally badly, even compared to other Republican candidates on the ballot that year. Um, and I'm hoping that this is just a bad phase that America is slowly coming out of. Yeah. Or does something linger? What will change it? I mean, if you, if I gave you fairy dust here, Walter, and you could make the perfect candidate appear, what do they look like or what do they feel and what do they stand for? Per- perfect candidate in which party? The perfect candidate, uh, I'm, I would um, be, uh, it is hard to believe that in 2008 and 2012, The Republican Party, the same Republican Party, we're not talking about 1892, we're talking about 10 to 15 years ago, they nominated John McCain in 2008 and Mitt Romney in 2012, people who are an anathema to the Trump. Uh, McCain was before he died and Romney is now. So, I mean, it is in my lifetime, no party has ever done such a complete 180 as the Republican. Yeah, it's it's absolutely unrecognizable. We are fresh from the release of the inquiry and the shooting in Nova Scotia. The RCMP did not fare well. We watched what happened with the convoy, and then we heard more about what was happening behind the scenes in the Emergencies Act inquiry. This week, as the attention on policing, the importance of it, the culture of it, that's been going on for a couple of years, Premier Doug Ford lowering the bar for the requirements for those who apply to be police officers, no longer requiring post-secondary education. What does that mean for policing? He says that it will increase the procurement. We hear that a lot in military and also in policing. But is it going to create a problem and take away what could be an advantage as we try to get a better kind of police force? Michael Kempa joining us live, Associate Professor of Social Science and Criminology at the University of Ottawa. Michael, good afternoon. Good afternoon. All right, Michael, you know, national perspective here and the move from Ontario. What did you make of it when you heard it? Well, I was a little bit surprised and disappointed in the sense that this move away from acquiring post-secondary education is a departure from Doug Ford's own police reform legislation. In 2019, his new Police Services Act was the one that got the ball rolling in the correct direction of requiring this type of training. So I'm a little bit confused. We're waiting for that legislation to finally be proclaimed in that we're still waiting for some regulations to be put together. In the interim, it seems we're rolling back on Doug Ford's own reforms. So it doesn't seem to make a great deal of sense. What do you think that doesn't make sense? But why did he do it here? You know, lowering it and creating, maybe taking away what could could have been an advantage here. We've had such a big conversation as a country, what we need for better policing here. He says it was about getting more people to apply. Do you think that post-secondary was keeping people away? So a couple of things there. I think that if I'm, I always start with a charitable interpretation. And I know that just about eight or nine days ago, last week, Uh, the chiefs of police from across Canada met with the provincial premiers. And I would expect that perhaps they would have leaned on the premiers a little bit and said, we've got a reduction in applicants coming forward to join police services. We don't have enough people on the ground. We need you to do something to help us to get more people involved in policing. And the simplest answer to that is to, of course, lower the bar and say, let's remove barriers for people in in joining the police service. 
But the reality is when you peel back, it makes sense. Make it easier to join the police and more people will join. But when you dial in to focus group interviews and surveys of young professional people, why they will or will not join the police, it doesn't have to do with them not meeting the standards. It has more to do with them not perceiving the police as a true profession, knowledge work at this point, rather seeing it as a trade. Therefore, if we keep the standards high, we'd be more likely to attract the best candidates moving forward into the future. And you've seen those focus groups. Is that is that the results on them? That is. Uh, the Canadian Police College that's attached to the RCMP ran a study along these lines in 2019-2020. And that's what we really got out of those focus groups with young professionals, university graduates. They'd like to join policing but only if they perceive that it's an organization on the upswing where the old culture that is based on basically the police doing everything themselves rather than linking up with community organizations and being open to women and racialized members of society to join their ranks. If we can present that true image that the police are moving in that direction with higher standards, far more high caliber candidates are likely to join. So, you know, we look at it and we say, how do we how do we change the culture? You and I have had this conversation. It's a big part of it. It was a part of almost every big police story and the ones we're watching right now as well. And then there's also resistance. Are we imposing things? Have we ruined uh, policing and their freedom to act here? Michael, is this, in your opinion, this move going backwards or forward? To me, it's very much going backwards in the direction of treating policing as a craft that people learn on the job, basically being apprenticed by other police officers. I think that modern policing is so complex. We've legislated at the provincial levels across Canada that police are going to be integrated into community safety and well-being, where they partner up and work on problem-solving with health organizations mental health, schooling, housing, on it goes with all of these networked nodal agencies that get involved in community health. You must treat it as a profession where people come in with those broad skills, the ability to interpret statistics, the ability to appreciate the police are linked up with all these other organizations before they get started, rather than expecting them to just learn on the job in the manner of a craft. Okay. You said, you gave us some really, to me, which was um, a really fascinating information about what those who aren't in the police force may be looking for. What about those in the police force? Is there a retention thing going on here? Would they be resistant to the description that you just gave? Yes, there is a divide in police organizations between progressive police membership that recognize that the future of policing is to be a key pillar in community safety and well-being. And I think a smaller number of perhaps middle management and more senior police officers that might prefer to to stay at the level of the police driving community enforcement. The reality is, however, and this is not sort of a professor's recommendation, provinces across Canada have already legislated that we're moving in that former direction. So the smartest police leadership and the most switched-on entry-level police officers recognize that they're moving in the direction of community safety and well-being. I would say, given what I know about Doug Ford's government and others, they've probably already made up their mind that they're going to drop this requirement for post-secondary education. So somebody like me as a professor could say, well, it's far better. The evidence indicates that you should have the education up front. But if that's not going to happen in a political sense, I would say, all right, make the training available, incentivize further education for high school level police uh, Mm -hmm. who come in and carry on as a condition of promotion with their post-secondary education. Yeah. And, you know, and, and in your studies, you know, as you say, I wanted to ask that question. We've got those who want to be, who are from the outside, and then we have the inside and how how they feel about the changes. Is there a way to do all this and 
help those who are resistant to change? I think so. I think the first move would be to just proclaim the Ontario Police Services Act from 2019 as it was drafted with supportive regulations, and then say, those of you who are already in police organizations, we're not going to leave you behind. We will make further education available to you so that you can excel and get ahead in your career in the police organization for the future. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.